Welcome to Stars and Swords. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this episode, we're going to conclude our festive journey through Narnia with chapters 15 through 17 inclusive of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And since I promised, I'll throw in some festive listener questions as a New Year's Eve bonus. And I'm curious if you, dear listener, are at this point as eager as I am to jump ahead to the adult Pevensies running around Narnia as kings and queens. But before we get to that, we have to talk about Aslan's sacrifice, Aslan's return, and the metaphysical framework in which all of this takes place. And the place to begin, of course, is with the deep and the deeper magic. Let's establish this early and then set it aside somewhat. The working of the deep magic and the deeper magic, the fine-grained detail of Aslan's death and resurrection, the mechanism of capital D death and what that means, all of this is, to my mind, kind of a mess. I've been working on this show, reading scholarly thoughts, going on long walks, and reading and rereading and rereading these pages for even more time than I normally do, and I still, I think, only have the outline of it, only the shape. And there's a part of me, I'll admit, that wants to throw up my hands and say, look, cards on the table, this is a children's book written by a guy who didn't care, by his own admission, didn't care about the kind of careful world-building and scrupulous rules-making that would allow us to get a clean intellectual apprehension of what is happening here. This is all about the power of language and the ways that a well-crafted proper noun hits the ear. The intent here, in the pages of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is emotional, not intellectual. And that's certainly fair. We can see by the way that the narrative voice reasserts itself in these chapters, often to communicate some detail of Susan or Lucy's emotional response, that what they are feeling, that what we are feeling, is perhaps the primary occupation of the text. This is how you communicate the emotionality of the allegory, and that is what's important. But I'm still me. And it's not that simple, because there are so many interesting elements here that I can't resist the urge to try to line them up to make order of them, all while skirting the edge of the trap of reading the book simply as an allegory. So, on the superficial level of this week's reading, Aslan will be sacrificed on the stone table by the White Witch and will be, in some way, by some degree, reborn. This return to life will break the stone table, or the breaking of the stone table will cause his return to life. And Aslan will be re-energized. He will be more fun and less somber than he was before. He will undo the petrification of the Narnians held at the witch's house. Then he will join the battle, killing the witch in very little time. So, on the one hand, got it. It works narratively according to its own fairy tale rules. It delivers an appropriate emotional resolution. But on that other hand, the emphasis that is put on the deep magic, on the deeper magic, on who knows what and when, it doesn't, I've become convinced, mean exactly what it says on the surface. And for all that our desire in this project as readers is to read the text with care and find the truth, we ought to acknowledge, we ought to celebrate that that is not always possible. We have to be content to live with ambiguity, to live with uncertainty, to entertain different interpretations, even if those interpretations overlap one another. And I might get to that point with this book, but I'm not there yet, and we've got one more session to go. The Deep Magic, then, which, at least in part, sets out the White Witch's rights over traitors in the realm of Narnia, is inscribed upon the stone table. Though, crucially, not just on the table. Quote, Tell you what is written on the very table of stone which stands beside us? 
Tell you what is written in letters deep as a spear is long on the firestones of the secret hill? Tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea? You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery, I have a right to a kill. End quote. So let's be careful, as is our way. We needn't necessarily believe that the same deep magic is inscribed in all three places, or that those are the only three places upon which the deep magic is inscribed, but the White Witch implies that such is true. The stone table, as has often been observed, is redolent of pagan altars and the traditional standing stones which litter the British landscape. The Firestone of the Secret Hill may be referencing pre-Christian druidic and pagan rites, wherein fires were kept burning in sacred spaces. Fire has obvious connotations as a primal religious focus. But what's surprising here, perhaps, is the letters deep as a spear is long, which, rather than suggesting a campfire, suggests something much, much larger. If the letters inscribed are five or six or seven feet deep into the stones, how large are the stones? What is the fire contained within or between them? We could note certainly the elemental aspects, that the stone table is of the earth and upon the earth. It's often pictured as being somewhat elevated, but as Paul Ford points out in his Companion to Narnia, which I mentioned before, Susan and Lucy can tend to Aslan while he is on the table and they are on the ground which suggests that it is very low indeed, more of a platform, perhaps, than a table. But the table is stone, the firestones are fire, perhaps, the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea certainly invokes water, and if we're talking about good magic in general, we're about to get the breath of Aslan in the middle of this reading, restoring the stone statues to life, so we may be tempted to engage in an elemental reading. In the American editions, pre-1994, by the way, Lewis changed the Firestones of the Secret Hill to a much more immediate and provocative site, on the trunk of the world ash tree. So much like changing the name of Mogrim to Fenris Ulf, as previously discussed, this evocation of the Norse Yggdrasil, now known to many of us primarily through Marvel movies, I'm sure, ties another religious tradition into the creation of Narnia. In fact, it's an interesting step toward what I read as a comprehensive religious history of Britain. That is, the paganism of the stone table, the tree of the invading Vikings, the scepter of both Roman and Norman authorities. Arguably, between these three objects listed by Jadis, we get a pretty good encapsulation of the major religious influences which defined Britain. So the idea seems to be that the deep magic is written upon each of these three objects, each representative perhaps of a different kind of religious belief. The deeper magic, we might infer, therefore, underlies all three of those religious traditions. Yes, there is a table for sacrifice in the pagan or perhaps Old Testament traditions. Yes, there is a site of ritual fire. Yes, there is a divine right of kings. But each of these beliefs is informed by or derived from the original deep magic woven into Narnia at the moment of its making. This gets us awfully close to concepts of natural law. And you'll remember, I'm sure, the White Witch's rhetorical switch from magic to law when she claims Edmund from Aslan. Natural law, as used here, is a system of objective moral rules, which some philosophers and scholars argue might exist independent of a particular culture or context. Natural law is the basic framework of good and evil, of human behavior, of society itself. 
it is natural in the sense that it is a product of the underlying mechanisms of the world. And the existence of an objective, real, natural law is speculated about by Aristotle, by Cicero. It's referenced in both the Old and the New Testaments, and it becomes a major part of the development of the philosophy of politics. The reason in the American Declaration of Independence that, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, end quote, is that natural law is, by which I mean is held to be, is believed to be, objective and axiomatic. We can footnote here that the shift from magic to law justifies, even if it doesn't completely explain, the existential threat against Narnia if Aslan doesn't obey. Quote, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That is so fascinating. But I think that we can read it as a consequence of breaking natural law, particularly in the simultaneous clash of fire and water, right? These opposed forces which are not balancing each other any longer, but are instead mutually and simultaneously destructive. If the natural law can be understood as the unseen innate ordering of the world, then the breaking of the natural law would lead to this kind of chaos. We can also see, I think, a defense of natural law in the depiction of good and evil in Narnia, in the proper progress of the world. The White Witch's magic interrupts or interferes with the process of natural law, whereas the magic that we see from Aslan is restorative rather than transformative. The White Witch petrifies, changing and freezing the nature of the creature. Aslan restores. This suggests a fundamental belief in the goodness of the underlying system, at least on the part of the book. So far, so good. But we have one more fine line to draw in our attempt to understand these concepts, and it might be the most important, because you'll note that the right of the White Witch over traitors isn't the whole of the deep magic. She repeats three times that rhetorical structure, tell you what is written, tell you what is written on the very table of stone, tell you what is written in letters deep as a spear, tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea, and then, crucially, switches to, you at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. By implication, therefore, the deep magic isn't this specific magic that the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. These are different things. The White Witch is saying here, should I talk about the table magic? Should I talk about the firestone magic, the scepter magic? Well, if not those, then at least you know about the traitor magic the emperor set up, right? And I find that to be a fascinating distinction. Because if only the traitor magic is put into the world of Narnia by the emperor at the beginning of time, and the deep magic pre-exists that, then aren't we implying that the other magics existed in Narnia already, that they are not of the emperor, that is, but rather of the world, or at least of the underlying systems of the world? And look what happens at the end of this section. I am getting perilously close to quoting every single instance of the words deep magic, which appear in this entire book here, too. When Susan whispers to Aslan, quote, Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear, can't we, I mean, you won't, will you? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the Emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face. And nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. Aslan could be read here as distinguishing between the deep magic and the Emperor's magic, between the table and tree and scepter, and the law the witch is specifically quoting. This is, I'll admit, a little more ambiguous and depends on whether we want to read his specificity, the Emperor's magic, as a confirmation to Susan or 
as a gentle correction to someone who doesn't understand all this as well as he does. And I'll confess, at this point, it feels as though we're maybe further from understanding any of this than we were at the beginning of today's session, but still, it fascinates me. So perhaps our best approach is to put a pin in this, to hold these distinctions in mind as we move forward, particularly to the breaking of the stone table. For now then, let's consider that there do seem to be three magics at play. The Deeper, which is known only to Aslan, the Deep, which is inscribed on the stone table and is known to both Aslan and the White Witch, and the Emperor's magic, which is put into Narnia at the moment of its creation. And... If you've read The Magician's Nephew, you will perhaps appreciate how much I want to jump the timeline right now and talk about a particular act of creation which occurs in that book, but we will get there. Christmas 2028? 2028, I think. It's a date. (laughs) So we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 15 with Lucy and Susan watching the death of Aslan, or, as the narrator tells us, covering their eyes because they cannot bear to look, and then the witch and her followers setting out. The girls approach the dead body of Aslan and weep. Then they work together to remove the awful muzzle and weep again. They try to undo Aslan's bonds, but can't, and they slip into a hopelessness, exhausted of emotion. Eventually, the sky begins to light in the east, and mice arrive to gnaw away the bonds. Note Lucy's words here, quote, I think they're friendly mice. Poor little things, they don't realize he's dead. They think it'll do some good untying him. In this way, of course, The mice are exactly the same as the girls. The girls remove the muzzle for no real purpose except that it would be good to do so. They don't believe that it will do any good. They are moved to do good without a belief that it will help. The mice finish their work, and we're told that the stars are fading, save for one bright in the eastern sky. The girls move away from the table to look down on the waking world to the east. They can eventually see Caraparavel, which is a gleam in the distance when Peter sees it in Aslan's company, so we might be interested in connecting Caraparavel and the star currently hanging over it. We'll circle back to that symbolism right at the end of today's episode. At the moment that the sun crests the horizon, there is the sound of a tremendous crack. The girls hesitate, understandably, and then turn back. Quote, The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All the colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. I mean, okay, allegorical reading of the rising of the sun. We get it. But this is so typical of Lewis, of the narrative voice of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to root the reader in the immediate experience of the scene, such that the emotional effect on the characters in the story is replicated on the reader, is replicated by the reader. This is genuinely great stuff. An open question which is unresolved by the text. When the table cracks, what do we suppose happens to the firestones of the secret hill? What do we suppose, crucially, happens to the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea? Do we intuitively understand these deep magics to be distinct, to be separate? Or do we see them all as being echoes of the other? This, by the way, is the last mention of the deep magic, not just in this book, but in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. I do most of my reading in a real-life paperback copy, which I have here on the desk in front of me, which I supplement with audiobook readings when I absolutely have to be doing something else, and I tend to go over and over the material. But for compiling these notes and 
delving into the details, the searchable text copy that I have on my computer is an incredible time saver. I can tell you thus that the phrase deep magic only appears six times in the body of the text, four times in the conversation between the White Witch and Aslan, once more from the White Witch during the sacrifice, and once more after the resurrection. Plus, once in the chapter heading for chapter 13, and once more in the table of contents. The phrase deeper magic only appears in the table of contents and the title of chapter 15. That's it. Quote, It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stand, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now... Oh yes, now, said Lucy, jumping up and clapping her hands. In any case, Aslan is back. His mane has returned, but he is a different kind of character for the rest of the book than he was before. He is unburdened, certainly, by the knowledge of his imminent death. But I think he is also more playful. He is less majestic and solemn. It's hard to imagine Aslan as we first meet him, all gravitas and authority, playing catch with the girls around the ruins of the stone table, throwing them in the air and then catching them again. We might consider this to be Aslan's actual character when he isn't afraid of his imminent demise. We might see this as joy on the part of Aslan at having been returned to Narnia. Or we might be tempted to return after a long absence to the idea of play. Aslan, reborn, is playing in a way that we might speculate is practice for what comes next. We can certainly draw a connection between this play and his attack on the White Witch at the end of the next chapter. Aslan roars, demonstrating that his power is at least undimmed by his experience at the stone table, and perhaps even strengthened. And then they ride off toward the witch's house, and this is a long passage, so I won't quote it, but note how skillfully the narrative voice here maintains rhythm and pace through the description of the journey. How many sentences begin with conjunctions, keeping the flow of the passage moving forward? How long the sentences are, how immediate the experience is. You know what, let's, let's read just the last sentence, which does, of course, begin with a conjunction. Quote, And you are riding not on a road, nor in a park, nor even on the downs, but right across Narnia, in spring, down solemn avenues of beech, and across sunny glades of oak, through wild orchards of snow-white cherry trees, past roaring waterfalls and mossy rocks and echoing caverns, up windy slopes, alight with gorse bushes, and across the shoulders of heathery mountains, and along giddy ridges, and down, down, down again into wild valleys and out into the acres of blue flowers. That is, I think, by anyone's metric, an absolutely mesmerizing description. And again, we're seeing the ability of the narrative voice to orient the reader exactly into the perspective of the characters. There is a real desire on the part of the narrative voice, which I think is only increasing as we're approaching the end of the text, and we will talk about this right at the very end of the book. There is a desire on the part of the narrative voice to situate the reader in the character's experience even more fully. We arrive at last at the witch's house and move into the next chapter, but the energy doesn't really abate. We have Aslan breathing on the statues, and we get this charming description, quote, then, without waiting a moment, he whisked around, almost as if he had been a cat chasing its tail, and breathed also on the stone dwarf, which, as you remember, was standing a few feet from the lion with his back to it. 
again, situating us not here in Lucy and Susan's experience, or I guess directly in Lucy and Susan's experience, but also evoking our own preferred and privileged position of remembering Edmund's account of the situation. And this continues through the entire sequence. We have the waking of the giant. We have the exploration of the house itself. We get disjointed dialogue communicating the energy and the joy and the chaos of the whole endeavor. The prose itself breaking down into that first person account in order to better communicate the emotional immediacy of it. Finally, we get this. Quote, But at last the ransacking of the witch's fortress was ended. The whole castle stood empty with every door and window open and the light and the sweet spring air flooding into all the dark and evil places which needed them so badly. The whole crowd of liberated statues surged back into the courtyard, and then it was someone, Tumnus, I think, first said, But how are we going to get out? For Aslan had got in by a jump, and the gates were still locked. That'll be all right, said Aslan, and then rising on his hind legs, he bawled up at the giant. Hi, you up there, he roared. What's your name? Giant Rumblebuffin, if you please, your honor, said the giant, once more touching his cap. Well then, Giant Rumblebuffin, said Aslan. Just let us out of this, will you? This casual mode of address that Aslan is using now is just adorable. It is much more like the Pevensey children than his original formality. And there might be some interesting reflection as we move into extremely formal language right at the end of the book from the Pevensey children as we consider what majesty, what kingship and queenship does to a person over time. And that reflexively might allow us to speculate about the changed nature of Aslan post-death and return. I'm going to resist the urge to go into an analysis of this as an exploration of that most kingly virtue, condescension. But there is certainly some interesting analysis to be done in the ways Aslan negotiates the expression of his own authority and his integration with his community, right? Just in that last line in which he asks Rumblebuffin to break the gate and free us from this witch's house includes what I take to be a genuine first-person plural object, us, rather than that magisterial plural we discussed earlier. He's not saying I am myself pluralized in the royal form, but rather all of us together. And you know, in fact, we should jump ahead because the, uh, Formerly stone statue lion has a line about this, too. Quote, The most pleased of the lot was the other lion, who kept running about everywhere, pretending to be very busy, but really in order to say to everyone he met, Did you hear what he said? Us lions, that means him and me. Us lions, that's what I like about Aslan. No side, no standoffishness. Us lions, that meant him and me. Now, obviously, this is a little comedic. It is a little charming. But it really does, I think, recognize a change in Aslan. This is the king come among his own people. This is the king condescending. And all right, I suppose since I've said it twice now, this might be the first you're listening to one of my podcasts, I should offer a little explanation. Condescension is a toxic trait in the modern world because fundamentally we believe that everyone is or ought to be equal. Thus, if I condescend to you, it is because I am implicitly elevating myself over you. I am assuming a social position as your superior. But this isn't how condescension works in the medieval period, during which time we, by which I mean cultures which exist in the shadow of Western European medieval history and also modern fantasy, absolutely believe that some people are the social superiors of others. You are born into your class. You have little to no social mobility. You are what you are, and your job is to be that. And part of that, for those higher on the social ladder, is the responsibility to those below you. You have a special privilege, yes, but part of that privilege is the obligation to 
protect and in some senses to serve those beneath you. They are beneath you. You are superior. But the ability to look down from your position, to recognize your inferiors, to talk with them and to show them kindness, that is kingly, regal condescension. And it is one of the most treasured virtues. The lion in a modern text might be irritated at Aslan's behavior. I'm a lion, just like him. What makes him so special? But the narrative frame, and possibly even the narrative voice, would nonetheless confirm Aslan's special status, even if only as an agent of the narrative. We might think of the ways in which Harry is treated by the Harry Potter novels, right, and by the other kids at Hogwarts, who keep running into Harry's specialness and being frustrated by it or envious of it or who don't really believe it, but the narrative voice always understands, just as the reader does, that those people are wrong. Harry really is special. In that way, the narrative voice here understands that Aslan is special, that Aslan is the king. So I prefer to read this as a gentle mockery of the other lion reawoken from his petrified state. And we see, yes, condescension. If you believe in an ordered social hierarchy in which some people are better than others, and you probably shouldn't in the 21st century, but if you do, then condescension is necessarily an admirable virtue. We should note too here that Tumnus credits Rumblebuffin as being a part of one of the most respected giant families in Narnia. Even giants can be good if they choose to be. Well, I say choose. It's interesting that Tumnus aligns Rumblebuffin's goodness with the fact that his family holds tradition, which I think speaks to a fundamental conservatism that we've mentioned in this book before, and of which we will get a striking example before we're done. We'll circle back to that in just a little while. While we're thinking here, too, of all of these ideas of play and fun and excitement, I would be remiss if I didn't note Aslan's final call to action. Quote, Our day's work is not yet over, he said. And if the witch is to be finally defeated before bedtime, we must find the battle at once. End quote. Now, that notion, that the adventure must be completed before bedtime, the end of play, the resumption of normal domestic life, absolutely speaks, I believe, to this notion of Narnia as a place of play, as a place of imagination. And I can understand why some readers might be resistant to that interpretation. You know, it's funny because I'm thinking now of notions of what we consider narratively real and where each of us might draw that line. And I'm thinking of suspension of disbelief and the investment of belief, which are going to be major themes as we move into the next book that we're going to discuss here on Stars and Swords. So maybe we'll hold off on some of this until we have a good counterexample, a good range of counterexamples, in fact, and parenthetically return to Narnia during the next series. More about that at the end of today's show. Onward then to the battle. Things look grim for Peter's forces, and the White Witch is in the middle of the brawl, though Lucy's account notes that she is not using her wand currently, but is instead battling Peter with her stone knife, the same knife, we might infer, that she used at the stone table to kill Aslan. We'll learn why this is her weapon of choice at the beginning of the next chapter, weapon of necessity, I suppose, but focusing on the why of the knife is to overlook its power as a symbol. Peter is in trouble. He is facing the weapon, that we have already seen put to terrible use. And just as things seem at their darkest, just at that moment of direst exigency, Aslan pounces on the witch and kills her. And it is rare that we get to see in fiction a Tolkienian eucatastrophe from the perspective of the intercessory force, or at least very close to the intercessory force, 
But here we are. And here, with the pounce of Aslan and the rolling around with the witch, we see the echo of his play with the girls back at the stone table. Play prepares us for the moment of real need. It is not real, but it has real consequence. We learn at the beginning of the final chapter, the final chapter, I know, that Edmund was the one who broke the White Witch's wand, having, as Peter says in his accounts, the sense to go for the wand rather than the witch like everyone else. So, obviously, we have the primary eucatastrophe here, that if Edmund had not fallen under the witch's spell, he might not have had the necessary insight that the wand is the means of the witch's petrification magic, as practiced at the Christmas Feast of the Woodland Animals. Even this evil, in the end, is turned to good. Lucy gives Edmund the cordial, and we see, after a little time, that it doesn't just heal him of his injuries, but also this stain on his heart, this wickedness. Quote, when at last she was free to come back to Edmund, she found him standing on his feet and not only healed of his wounds, but looking better than she had seen him look, oh, for ages. In fact, ever since his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong, he had become his real old self again and could look you in the face. And there on the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. And there's a lot that we might make of the curative power of this cordial, but we would have to be careful, I think. We would have to take pains to distinguish the healing power of the cordial from the healing power of forgiveness and redemption. What shadow still on his heart is Edmund carrying into this final battle after being forgiven by Aslan? What are we to make of the suggestion that if he learned of Aslan's consequence, that it would be dire indeed, that the burden, the emotional burden on Edmund would be unkind, if not unforgivable. This is one of the few emotional notes in particularly this part of the book that has never really sat well with me. I don't know why we are calling out that Edmund ought to be protected from the truth, because forgiveness is forgiveness, and if it is incomplete, then it isn't real forgiveness in the first place. Redemption is redemption, and if it is incomplete, then it isn't real redemption either. Either Edmund would understand what had happened and could empathize with Aslan for it, or he isn't truly whole again. It pains me to say it, but I wonder at what point here Susan is being overprotective, a quality that increasingly we are finding in Susan's dialogue. From there, we rush onward to our destination, and the narrative voice continues this upward swing into heightened oratory. Quote, the castle of Caraparavel on its little hill towered up above them. Before them were the sands, with rocks and little pools of salt water and seaweed and the smell of the sea and long miles of bluish-green waves breaking forever and ever on the beach. And oh, the cry of the seagulls! Have you heard it? Can you remember? Situating Caraparavel, situating the experience of Caraparavel here, not just in the reality of the Pevensey children's adventures, whatever we take that word reality to mean here, but extrapolating it out to mean something greater and to mean something which, by implication, the reader has already experienced. Have you sensed wonder? Have you sensed joy? Have you known this place in your dreams, in your fantasies, in your imaginative play? Is this familiar to you? This is perhaps the most daring of all the narrative gambits made by The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As we move here toward the end of the book, we really are elevating the Pevensey children's experience into something that is approaching, at least, the universal. We are making this book coterminous with all fairy tale books, all fantasy adventure stories. We are bringing all good-hearted and positively inclined narratives 
particularly those intended for children, into alignment, one with the other, so that the reader can feel this experience of Narnia, but know even in this moment that it is not unique to Narnia, that it is not simple. This is the Lewis Avatar narrative voice making a case for all fantasy fiction. Have you heard it? Can you remember? From there, we move through the formal crowning ceremony of the kings and queens of Narnia, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, respectively. And during this, Aslan departs. And there's a really interesting narrative trick that the book plays here, too. Quote, But amidst all these rejoicings, Aslan himself quietly slipped away. And when the kings and queens noticed that he wasn't there, they said nothing about it, for Mr. Beaver had warned them, quote, He'll be coming and going, he'd said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. And the trick here, of course, is to place Mr. Beaver's account in the past of the story, that this has already happened. It is now being recalled now that Aslan is gone, but it is not immediate. We do not have to face the emotional consequence of it in the here and now and perhaps take a break from the joyous, emotionally cathartic conclusion to this story. And that's okay, because Aslan's not really a part of this story. He's crucially not a part of Narnia. And I'm already running terribly long, but I did promise that I would call out Lewis's conservatism here at the end of the book. We're going to talk about the reign of the kings and queens of Narnia here. Quote, And they made good laws and kept the peace, and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down, and liberated young dwarfs and young satyrs from being sent to school, and generally stopped busybodies and interferers, and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. And that is, let's be clear, a starkly political perspective. It is a centrist conservative perspective, sure, but it is the political perspective of someone who believes fundamentally that things are just fine as they are, and if we stopped making changes, everything would be all right. We don't need to send these young dwarfs and young satyrs to school. We don't need to educate those who don't need to be educated. We need to stop busybodies and interferers, and we need to encourage ordinary people who want to live and let live. This is a fairly small Middle England post-war bit of political philosophy, which we will affectionately, I think, let slide at this point. And so we get to perhaps the most provocative part of this book. We get to see the Pevensey children grow up. We get to see them spend their lives as kings and queens of Narnia. We get some accounts of their adventures, the battling against the giants and so forth. And then ultimately, we get the pursuit of the white stag, into the forest. We approach the lamppost and they express in their elevated courtly way, foreboding. Quote, and in mine too, said Queen Susan, wherefore by my counsel we shall lightly return to our horses and follow this white stag no further. Madam, said King Peter, therein I pray thee to have me excused, for never since we four were kings and queens in Narnia have we set our hands to any high matter as battles, quests, feats of arms, acts of justice and the like, and then given over? But always what we have taken in hand, that same we have achieved. Sister, said Queen Lucy, my royal brother speaks rightly, and it seems to me we should be shamed if for any fearing or foreboding we turned back from following so noble a beast as now we have in chase. And so say I, said King Edmund. And I have such desire to find the signification of this thing that I would not by my good will turn back for the richest jewel in all Narnia and all the islands. Then in the name of Aslan, said Queen Susan, if you will all have it so, let us go on and take the adventure that shall fall to us. Susan 
is often presented as being the least Narnian of the four children. But here we get definitive proof that that is not the case, that it is her caution, it is her desire to protect her siblings, to, in some sense, speak with her mother's voice, that causes her to hesitate. It might not be too difficult to imagine a version of this scene where Susan is the one who advocates investigating the lamppost and, by extension, returning to the real world from Narnia. But here, she feels the same foreboding as the others and doesn't want to proceed. Peter, though, is the one who responds that they have never set themselves a goal that they have failed to accomplish, and so they won't turn around no matter what. And then we're back in the real world. Mrs. McCready is still in the passage. No time has passed. It is easy to read this as a terrible burden upon the children, that they have grown, that they have moved through adolescence, that they have fought and conquered and become more than they were. They have become, in some sense, as the narrative tells us, their true selves. And now here they are again, awkward children sequestered in the countryside to hide from the dangers of a terrible war, left to face deprivation and hardship and, worst of all perhaps, mundanity. Randall Monroe, the author of the excellent webcomic XKCD, once published a five-panel comic in which in the first panel our hero is pulled through a magical portal into a fantasy realm. He saves the kingdom and, as we are told, learns self-confidence, then returns home. And in the last panel, he is holding the ring given to him to remember the fantasy realm, and he says, well, I guess I spent the rest of my life pretending that this didn't happen or knowing that everyone I love suspects I'm crazy. This will be a fun 70 years. But this isn't, crucially, what happens to the Pevensey children, a point that is absolutely confirmed by the professor at the end of the book. Narnia, he says, is not to be taken as a real place. The growing up that the children did is not the same as growing up in the real world. They have learned lessons. They have play-acted the part. And what they have done will always be a part of them, as we learn from the repeated line, once a king or queen of Narnia, always a king or queen of Narnia. Yes, you have been changed, and that change will be a part of you, but it is not the same. And it's tempting, perhaps, to push back against this as readers, because as readers, we want Narnia to be real. We've just spent 150 pages invested in this place. We want to believe that the story that we have read, that the belief that we have invested, in some sense, matters. And it does, because Narnia is magic. It doesn't matter that it isn't real, because the magic is still with us. The children, as kings and queens of Narnia, aren't really what they will grow into in the real world. King Peter the Magnificent is a part of Peter, but not the whole. The same for King Edmund the Just, Queen Susan the Gentle, Queen Lucy the Valiant. The desire to distill the world into what is real and what is not, and thereafter to believe that only the real matters is reductive, and it's contrary to the desire of the text, which isn't, of course, in this last act, talking to the Pevensey children, but it is talking to you, it is talking to us, it is talking to the readers of this book who have also just experienced an adventure that has changed us, and now we too are about to be returned to the real world. To suggest that Narnia doesn't matter to the Pevensey children because it isn't real is to suggest that the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe doesn't matter to us for the same reason. But it does. Fantasy and fairy tale, play and make-believe, these things have a stronger hold on our spirits than might first be thought. And though I poke fun, gentle fun, at Lewis's conservatism, having the professor, this figure of authority, of rationality, not only speak in the defense of Narnia, but to actively encourage the children, not to lose themselves in the pursuit of Narnia, because that won't work but to be open to returning someday? 
It is among the most powerful arguments in favor of fantasy fiction that I've ever read. And that, though the narrative voice tells us that this is only the beginning of the adventures in Narnia, is the end. Before we wrap up, though, because I promised that this would be a Q&A session before my schedule got completely out of control, and I am at least a man of my word, let us answer some listener questions. You can always get in touch with me by emailing starsandswordspod at gmail.com or joining the Discord chat by going to patreon.com slash nextword. So let's get to our first question. This comes to us from Eric from the Discord, who writes, How is Father Christmas not something that seems human but is not? Perhaps he is parallel in a way to Tom Bombadil, allied with but orthogonal to the Emperor Beyond the Sea, coming into being before the creation of Narnia itself. Although, unlike Tom Bombadil, I would say that Narnia is not his home. He visits it from some realm beyond, just like he visits Earth. Now, Eric, this is fascinating, and I suppose... It absolutely depends on how we parse that line, right? That introductory line of Father Christmas. Quote, everyone knew him because though you see people of his sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe door. But when you really see them in Narnia, it is rather different. End quote. So this is tricky, right? Though you see people of his sort only in Narnia could be taken to mean this is where people like Father Christmas really exist, or... It can be taken as people like Father Christmas can only be seen when they are in Narnia because of a special property of Narnia rather than a special property of the person or the the mythic figure. Is this Father Christmas's home in some sense, or is it a property of this world that it reveals things otherwise left unseen? Either, I think, is possible. And certainly in his criticism of Lewis's book, Professor Tolkien took it to be the former, which is why he found Lewis's world building to be so disjointed and dissatisfying. But if we take it to be the latter, then we circumvent that chaotic world building rather neatly. That is to say, Father Christmas is not of Narnia. He exists in Narnia in the same way that he exists in Earth, but Narnia reveals his truth. In order to figure it out, we would have to get more information Not just about Father Christmas, but Christmas itself, as it is in Narnia, as it is practiced, as it is realized in Narnia. I got excited for a moment when I realized that in chapter 10, only the narrative voice calls Father Christmas by his name. And I immediately began wondering if he is known by a different name in Narnia. But no, the fox in the next chapter at the uh, festive feast refers to him by name before he is petrified by the White Witch. And here we might turn to our history to try and gain a greater understanding. In Britain, the tradition of Christmas tide begins in the 11th or 12th centuries, and it is thought that it is adapting pre-existing celebrations, but we have basically no information about those. But the spirit of Christmas isn't embodied until the 15th century in the character, rather charmingly, of Sir Christmas. The phenomenon of Santa Claus and the root connection to St. Nicholas doesn't come to Britain from mainland Europe, but rather all the way from the United States, where it has been distilled and adapted from the stories of Dutch immigrants. So Father Christmas doesn't begin to synthesize with Santa Claus in the British Imaginarium until the middle of the 19th century, which I suppose if we're willing to jump the timeline and acknowledge that the White Witch's winter has lasted for a century, makes the term Father Christmas in Narnia contemporaneous rather than endearingly anachronistic? Though the truth is that I think Lewis's brand of mid-century Oxfordian conservatism would probably use Father Christmas by default, just as Tolkien did, of course, in his letters from Father Christmas that he wrote to his children. And (laughs) a quick plug here, if you've never read those, you should. I mention this to 
loop back around to the question of Father Christmas's correlation to Tom Bombadil. And yes, I think there's something really interesting there. If we look at Father Christmas's own relationship, not, I think, with the Emperor Beyond the Sea per se, but with Christmas itself, Father Christmas springs from the same origin in a sense, right, but is a different interpretation that is slowly being left behind by the narrative frame of social progress. In much the same way, Tom Bombadil, we might speculate, springs into the world by that same creative phenomenon that causes the world in the first place, but is left behind by the march of history. Neither Father Christmas nor Tom Bombadil seems unhappy at the way this occurs, because part of what defines them is a satisfaction with their own domain and with their own purpose. So in that way, Eric, yes, I think you have got something there. I do. That said, we're possibly overlooking the significance of Father Christmas as a counterpoint to the White Witch. Father Christmas comes once a year, comes, in fact, in a practically infinitesimal, vanishing moment of, of, (laughs) forgive me, of presence and presence. In this way, Father Christmas is perhaps the ultimate example of Christmas's limited temporality, right? Christmas does not last. It is a thing which, by definition, cannot last. And the presence of Father Christmas in the real world lasts the least. Perhaps we can make something of that within the frame of Narnia, that time has paused for the duration of the White Witch's winter. It is now beginning to move again, thanks to the presence of Aslan. Perhaps Father Christmas's time with the Pevensey children is a function of that still slowed passage of time, right? That he gets to spend time with them because things go more slowly in Narnia, or at least go more slowly in this, the tail end of the White Witch's enchantment. Perhaps time just doesn't have the same rules as we might expect in Narnia as it does on Earth. In any case, Father Christmas can then be taken as a robust counterpoint to the White Witch herself, a force of joyous and fleeting immediacy versus a force of constant and unyielding stasis, whether we interpret that stasis as her unending winter or the petrification of the creatures of Narnia. And in this way, Eric, I think we really do see... uh, a commonality between Father Christmas and Tom Bombadil. They are both immediate, they are both active, they are gentle, and they have no ambition beyond their existing domain. And in that way, they are both counterpoints against the major antagonists of their fantasy worlds. So, yes, I think so. I don't know if that meaningfully answers your question, Eric, but I hope we will pick up any outstanding thoughts over on the Discord. Thank you so much for getting in touch. Our second question comes from the wonderful Louise in Dallas, who also over on the Discord suggested that I talk a little about the astrological interpretation of Lewis's work and thus make good on my promise in an earlier episode to talk about the man who is probably the most influential and significant critic of Lewis's work today, Dr. Michael Ward. In particular, Louise writes, quote, Jupiter is for the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and I think the idea of a celebratory Jupiter fits in very well with Father Christmas, end quote. And I think that this is a really interesting perspective on Lewis's work. It's one that lies a little bit outside of my areas of expertise in two or three different axes. The overlapping part of this Venn diagram is a sliver, honestly. But I've enjoyed reading and learning, as always. I can't really summarize Ward's book here, which is called Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. The link to that will be in the show notes. But the basic principle is this. Lewis is interested throughout his life in medieval cosmology and in astrological symbolism. That is, 
the impact of the seven quote-unquote planets which orbit Earth, right? Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, plus the Sun and the Moon. And the Chronicles of Narnia can be presented as though they are in alignment with those celestial bodies, at least per ward. I should say up front that I am generally extremely skeptical of this kind of schematic interpretation. I've never been terribly convinced by numerology or representations of tarot cards or astrological symbols in the context of interpreting a narrative. It's easy to go through a book and count up how many characters or locations or magic weapons there are and find something to match. Seven characters? Well, each must respond to one of the deadly sins. There are four magic swords? Well, they must be the classical elements. There are 39 magical gemstones? Well, that's three times 13, so we're in numerology country here. Or maybe each one corresponds to one of the presidents of the United States before Ronald Reagan. Which is to say that I need more than red thread on a corkboard to make this systemic schematic approach compelling. And Ward, in his defense, does the legwork. He mostly cites Lewis's ongoing fascination with medieval cosmology, and he quotes Dunn at the end of his first chapter, which is a strong way of securing my interest, I must admit. The invocation of Jupiter in particular as the representative star of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is interesting. It is perhaps the most compelling of Ward's arguments. It is certainly the most influential celestial symbol over Lewis's work as a whole, as Ward explains at some length. The connection between Jove, this jovial, jovian celestial aspect, and Aslan is a really interesting one, particularly because it encourages us to situate Aslan at the center of the campaign against the witch's magic, right? We cannot forget that in some sense, Aslan is the protagonist of this story. It is Aslan's action, according to the poems told by the beavers, that ends the winter. But really, it's kingship. It's the role of Aslan as king of beasts, the role of Aslan as a king, if not, crucially, a king of Narnia, neither in the mode of Peter and Edmund nor in any other mode. I should mention, by the way, that it was Jupiter that I was thinking of when I mentioned the star hanging over the ocean as the sun rises, which I likened to Ker Paravel, of course, if we are drawing symmetry between the gleaming star of Ker Paravel as Peter apprehends it, and then the star in the sky as Susan and Lucy apprehend it, I think kingship might well be on our mind there. I am running extremely long, and I don't have a developed point-by-point -point analysis of Ward's book, but I will give it a positive review and encourage you, if you're interested in reading Lewis further, to pick it up. I plan on reading it in more detail this spring, so if you have thoughts, bring them over to the Discord. And, you know, if you guys would be interested in reading Planet Narnia or something like it as a part of this series, then let me know, because I've, I've conceived this show to be oriented around fiction, but I read a lot of academic writing too, and if you would be interested either in breaking down a particular book and looking at how the arguments are constructed, how we build analytical discourse between books, or if you're perhaps interested in looking at the classics of the form to get a good critical foundation, then I see no reason that we couldn't do that too. Maybe in a book club format over on the Discord, maybe live discussions, I don't know. Get in touch with your thoughts if that kind of thing would be of interest to you. Thank you so much, Louise, for getting in touch. I hope we'll be able to talk further on the Discord about the contents of Michael Ward's book. So that takes us at last to the end of our discussion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Next week, in the first episode of 2024, we're going to get underway with our second season, and I am thrilled, I am surprised, frankly, to announce that the Patreon voters have chosen Rabbits, a 2021 novel 
by podcaster and filmmaker Terry Miles. This is a great book. It is a fast read. It offers a really interesting perspective on being and belonging, on meaning, on cause and on coincidence and on reality in fiction. It's a fast read. The internet suggests a little more than seven hours for the whole book. But I'm going to have to begin by slowing down because I'm going to want to set the stage with some context about interactive texts, texts which feign interactivity, and alternate reality games. So right now, I think we're going to run for five weeks, including that shorter introductory reading and a Q&A at the end. This schedule is going to be even more flexible than most here at Stars and Swords because we are basically going to be the first readers to take a scholarly approach to this novel. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I can't completely ignore the possibility that we will spend a lot of time on some tangents. I should also say that Rabbits is based on two seasons of a narrative podcast of the same name, two and uh, half seasons, I guess, because there is an additional miniseries. I would recommend not listening to the podcast first, though in some senses the book is a sequel. I would at least recommend going into the book blind. And once you have a feeling about the text and the tone, if you feel compelled to go listen to the podcast, then you should, though... Be careful if you're listening on iTunes, I will note, because the episodes in my iTunes at least are out of order, so take care. I do plan on covering the podcast in a bonus episode toward the end of January, so we'll get a chance to talk about the excellent production values of the series and some of the challenges of serialized storytelling. So because we have that extra ground to cover, and because this is very much a novel that teaches you how to read it, we're going to start with this very short reading. Everything up to the beginning of Chapter 4, including the second note on the game by Hazel, which you will know when you see it. So that episode will drop next Sunday, Sunday, January 7th. The link to Rabbits and the podcast of the same name are in the show notes, and I hope that you will be able to join me. And if you absolutely must have a little more of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe before we move on, come join me on Patreon for a bonus discussion of the 2005 movie adaptation, which we'll post within the next few days. And if you have the time, the inclination, and the generosity of spirit at this special time of year, please take a moment to leave a rating or a review in your podcast app. Or better yet, go text a friend right now. Send a DM, post about Stars and Swords on your social media. I don't host advertising on this podcast or pay for advertising in the world because advertising, let's face it, is a blight on our cultural landscape. So word of mouth is the most powerful force at our command to find those like-minded people who want to explore with us. That is going to do it for this week. That is going to do it for the first volume of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'll be back next week with more. And so, for a time, it looked as if all the adventures were coming to an end. But that was not to be. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year.